Welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high-profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include... Dustin Fletcher, Al Bruce, Travis Stork, everybody, Tyson Edwards, Brett Maher, Dale Kicker, Eugene Brickens, Kevin Brooks, Jack Fitzpatrick, Dale McDonald, Sam Jacobs, Cal Brooks, Marcus Burry, Sean Reddish, Tony Spackenthal, Andrew Vlahov, Graham Corn, Brian Curl, Jason Akamatis, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Lich, Matt Smith, Michael Brooks, Brendan T, Jordan McMahon, Brett Burt, Matt Shanahan, Rupert Southwell, Dusty Rokart, Sam Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin, Dylan Addison, Daniel Georgeski. Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter. They've got a brand new stadium, a big one, and they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the Eagle has landed. They're the premiers in 2018. Transition for Brisbane Raw Premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The 17 year drought is over. All hail the Kings. Sydney, the NBL 22 champions. 3 0 sweep. They win it 97 to 88. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Welcome everyone to episode number 35 of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast. I'm your host, Dan, and for today we are joined by former Melbourne Victory Championship winner, 2017 Joe Marston medalist and Macedonian international Daniel Georgievsky. We discuss growing up in a Macedonian family where his love of football originally began, playing professional football in Croatia and the surprising differences in the language compared to Macedonia, winning titles in Romania for Staura Bucharest, getting called up to represent the Macedonian national team and what that meant for him and his family, returning to Australia in 2014 and winning an A-League championship with Melbourne Victory, the 2017 grand final loss to Sydney FC and winning the Joe Marston medalist a very, very rare occurrence where the man of the match is awarded to a player on the losing team. Heading to the Newcastle Jets the next year and being part of that controversial grand final loss and the long-lasting ramifications that loss had on the Jets in the years to come. His difficult time at the Western Sydney Wanderers and his relationship with Carl Robinson. His short yet sweet time at Melbourne City and his decision to retire and turn down an offer from the Central Coast Mariners to put family first. So from 2014 to 2021, Daniel Drzejewski played 138 games in the A-League. He scored four goals, played in seven finals and three grand finals. He is an A-League championship winner in 2015, as I mentioned. He also won an FFA Cup in 2015. He was the Joe Marston medalist in 2017. He won two Romanian titles in 2012-13, and 2013-14, and of course, he made 22 senior appearances for the Macedonian national team. And nowadays, he runs a football academy, CBFI, 
If you're based in Sydney and you have a child or someone that you know that wants to play some football, definitely hit him up. I'll put the link in the description below and you can get involved. So just a short, sharp and sweet intro because I know you don't want to hear from me. You want to hear from the guests. So let's get this one underway. From Melbourne Victory, Newcastle Jets, the Western Sydney Wanderers, Melbourne City and the Macedonian national team, it's Daniel Georgievsky. Melbourne, hear the sound of drumming, must be the victory coming, pumps up and full of running, victory the brave. Lovely first touch there from Georgievsky, who's going to try and place it. Oh, what a goal! 2 0 to the victory. And it's the first goal in the A League from Daniel Georgievsky, and it's one to save it right into the top corner. Falling ready, all ends up. Great finish from Georgievsky, and it's his positive play. He's on the front, and he's still out of what to do. Leaves it, Georgievsky. Georgievsky! Moved across, looked like the chance was gone, but he found Georgievsky and just blasted into the top corner. Absolutely cracking goal. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter, and today we're joined by Macedonian international and championship winner with Melbourne Victory, Daniel Georgievsky. Zdravo Kakosi, thank you very much for coming on the show, brother. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I'm loving the cultural language <laughs> you just thrown out there. Oh, all I know is Zdravo Kakosi because it's the same in Croatian, <laughs> Serbian, Macedonian. Yeah, it's all the same, man. It's all the same. <laughs> Daniel, what have you been up to, man? You played your last A-League game in, what, 2021? How's the sort yeah. of first year or, or two years been for you transitioning out of professional football? And what are you doing with yourself these days? To be honest, when I was deciding that I didn't want to play anymore, I got an offer to play and I was just, I just wasn't in the mood. I guess my, my interest lied elsewhere. During that time, I got approached by Paramount Plus, Channel 10, to help commentate and be a pundit. So I'm doing a bit of that and I open up a soccer academy here in Sydney, New South Wales, and just been plugging away at, at that, man, and just teaching the basic fundamentals of football to kids. I understand that you're also ambassador for a charity, Boots for Balkans. Can you give us a bit of information about this organisation? Yeah, look, when I came to Australia... Well, I left in 2006, so when I came back in 2014 in the A-League, a few blokes, a few mates just approached me with this idea to pretty much give back to the Balkans. And because I played in Europe for eight years, I knew a lot about it. So what we do is we collect old boots, boots that kids just grow out of, and we collect them. We Ones that are repairable, we repair them and we send it off to the Balkans, majority to Macedonia, to orphanages and like villages and all that place they don't really have boots or any gear so we just have those connections overseas like i said in macedonia because played for the national team for so long made those connections and just give them gear and products of stuff they usually in australia we throw away unfortunately that brings us into your macedonian heritage so were your parents born there yes my parents came to australia in 1985 with my brother and i was born here in 88 my mum's from Stip. It's about an hour away from the capital of Skopje. And my dad's from Skopje. So they met, obviously, in Skopje. They got married quick, quick, fast. And then they had my brother. And I guess a year later, they my, my uncle moved to Australia. And back then, it was just more of a spontaneous decision. They came and they didn't like it, but they couldn't afford to go back. And the rest of my family came. His other brother came to Australia as well. And they ended up living here so yeah i was fortunate enough to be born 
and raised here in Australia. So growing up, was Macedonian your first language? At home, my, um, like I said, my dad, his older brother moved to Australia. He had two daughters and his younger brother moved as well. So at home was always spoken Macedonian. And even today, I find that we speak English to my parents or my uncles and aunties because that's how we were raised. But obviously with my cousins and brother, we spoke English, but it was more Macedonian. So going to school, I didn't know much English when I started. So quite typical. Is your wife Macedonian? Yes, she is Macedonian. Met her in Melbourne when I came to Australia and she you know, just you know, fell in love straight away. And it was a bonus that she was Macedonian, but <laughs> she's third generation. Oh, okay. So she, can she speak it? She's more oldified. <laughs> she's yeah, more okay. oldified than yeah. Her grandparents came down, but uh, she understands it, but we speak English at home. Yeah, cool, cool. So when did your love of football first start? Was was football always your number one sport of choice growing up? I started playing when I was nine and we moved into a new house and my dad gave me the option to either do karate because it was this community centre that was doing karate or play soccer and I just, I wanted karate being for the girls and all that stuff, you know, be all, all cool but I think I was just playing soccer in the backyard and I just wanted to play soccer and that's where your cousins with your family just playing in the backyard I wanted to I just found it naturally easy to do so I just enjoyed playing park soccer for the first nines and tens and then it just progressed I guess so why was it between soccer and and karate didn't play any other sports no I loved rugby league to be honest being from New South Wales but my old man did not let me play at all like I loved it at school and all that stuff but he goes mate they're gonna smash up and us wogs don't play rugby league, so you're not playing it. <laughs> that was pretty much it. He never saw and signed the form so I can play it in school, but I did love rugby league. But coming from Macedonia, coming from Europe, all they knew was soccer or football. So that's all we played. That's the only shaped ball we had at home. That was pretty much the reason why. So what was once you've made that final decision you wanted to be a footballer, what, what was the process <laughs> for you to make the professional level? So... You went to Marconi Stallions and then Dinamo Zagreb, Croatia. When throughout the journey did you think you could potentially make a really high level? To be honest, I never thought about it. I never thought I'd be saying that soccer was my life and my career. I just found it easier. I always had a passion for it. I always loved doing it. And I think I pretty much just didn't want to work. My dad has a concreting company and my hands are too soft to be a concreter and I didn't want to do that. So playing soccer was just something that I always love doing like uh, they have a game on a Saturday Friday night I'm in bed by 9 o'clock 8.30 and that was just me up until I was you know growing up it was just a normal thing and I think it just got me off the streets and I just found it like I said easy to do and then me going I got cut actually from Blacktown Demons which was also a club in the old NSL days and I went to Marconi and I was never in the AIS I was never in football New South Wales or in Swiss any of those elite levels and teams I was never one of those players and it kind of drove me to become better and I always said I was I should be there or I should be better but you know I was never picked I was never selected but I guess that just gave me fuel to just to prove them wrong and then when I was 18 I started to play for the Macedonian under 19 I just sent a video overseas to my uncle and he gave it to some other coach and a long story short they called me up and I started playing for under 19th Macedonian team and I was still playing in Australia and going back and forth and got selected. I played a few good games, got scouted and they 
pretty much just invited me to go to Croatia and give it a go and that's pretty much how it started. I got a call on a Friday, say you got a flight on a Sunday, you've got a trial game on a Wednesday and that was pretty much it. There was no steps, it was just purely within three, four days you're in Europe. So when you went to Croatia, the language, I know it's very similar Macedonian and Croatian, but did you have any problems with the language or if you understand Macedonian, can you get by in Croatia pretty easily? I thought so. To be honest, when I, I remember it clear as day, I went, when my parents were dropping off at the airport, my dad came with me, obviously, because I didn't know Croatia. Actually, the tournament that I played well in, I scored against Croatia and it was in Croatia. So I struggled with Macedonian as well, playing in the national team, because I thought I knew it, but it was like Australian Macedonian, so it was quite mixed. I didn't know it as fluent as I thought I did. So I remember at the airport, my mum goes, just know when you get there, say, book for high and buy. And I go, well, what do you mean? I go, don't we say in Macedonian, zdravo. She goes, no, 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 in Croatia, it's different. And I went, what do you, I didn't get it. And she goes, you'll figure it out. And um, when I got there, I had to bloody figure it out, to tell you the truth. I ended up buying a thesaurus so I could understand the words and I started learning it just from watching TV and yeah reading a dictionary of specific words because I didn't really know like 30% of it is quite similar to Macedonian but I didn't know Macedonian 100% so I had to learn the language and now I speak it better than Macedonian. That's interesting and is there different dialects because like for example Mm. my family's from Italy and my parents speak a different dialect to you know some of my friends parents is that yeah they have different dialects? Yeah, so in Zagreb is obviously one specific dialect, but that's how I learned the Croatian language. So then when I signed up my first professional contract, it was up north in Medjimuri, and I rocked up there and signed the contract. And the, I will never forget it. There was one player that lived on one side of town, which was next to the Hungarian border, and another player lived on the Slovenian border. And when they started speaking to each other, they couldn't understand themselves, let alone me trying to understand them and just saying hello. I looked at my phone, I said, am I in Croatia or am I in a different country? Because I could not understand a word that they said. So their dialect was way different to what Zagreb was, and in, in Zagreb was, sorry, and then three years later I signed in Dalmatia in Shibini, and that was a whole different dialect as well. They're more laid back, they're more chill. So yeah, you learn the dialect, so I had to. I was living on you know, those three sections of Croatia, but if anything, I looked at it, it was a great cultural eye-opener and get to learn every aspect of the country. Is there like a proper way to speak Macedonian and then there's dialects? Like if you were to study Macedonian, is there like one version of the language that's considered like the proper Macedonian? Well, in Australia, a lot of the Macedonians that came here were from Bitola, Orkrit, that section, and that is considered the purest Macedonian around. So me playing in Macedonian, I was players from Strumitsa, like Goran Pandev and being from Shtip is a whole different dialect because it's closer to the Bulgarian border. So I learned all these different styles of dialect in Macedonia playing for the national team. And then I came to Australia and because a lot of them, or majority of Macedonians are from Bitola and that Orchid region and my wife who understands it. And then we would have arguments because she would say, this is the way it's said. And I said, no, I've, I live there. <laughs> I know it's this way. This is the right way that they speak about it today. But obviously... Through time and through influences of even the Eastern Bloc, some English words get in there, Serbian words get in there, the dialect changes. So I think the purest will be the, from years ago, will be like the Vitola way. So I kind of know that as well, but you can get around specific ways of 
well, one piece of fruit can be named three different ways depending on where you're from, which is a quite common thing like you would have in Italy as well. Well, because like my parents, they say to say come here is venicoir, but they say venica, little things yeah. like that. Yeah, there's, there's those little ones that make sense, but then there's ones that just don't make sense at all. It's like, how the hell did you get that from that? But that's because of the region that you know it from and that said people from one side, like when going to Croatia for one, they lived 10 kilometers away from each other, they couldn't understand each other because of where they lived and it's the same in Macedonia. Like, um, my mum's 100 kilometers away from Skopje and they couldn't understand each other because of the dialect that they use. So it was, it was a good thing to read in a book, but when you're there living and breathing it, it's actually, you find yourself a bit gobsmacked half the time of like, what am I actually speaking? Because I don't even know what dialect I'm actually heading towards. I'd imagine that you don't properly learn unless you, as you said, you go there and you actually immerse yourself in the language and the culture. That is exactly right. And funny enough, being there for eight years, my English actually was affected quite a bit. And I came to when I came to Melbourne, my wife was, which was my girlfriend, the first person I met. She actually thought I was a foreigner because my English wasn't <laughs> that good. She goes, "This guy just come off the boat," <laughs> and oh, wow. I was like, "Well, I have English." But because I didn't speak it fluently every day, it obviously, learning this language affected that. So I had to literally start reading books and learning English to be your number one language because I would start thinking of the grammatical way of in Croatian or in Macedonian or even Romanian of how to say something which in English didn't make sense. So learning too much, I wasn't the best in school. So learning that kind of, uh, my memory math was kind of full. But it was a good experience. All right, everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccino's, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions and birthday parties just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. We also cater for meal deals including bacon and egg rolls, hamburgers and hot dogs upon request. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, book with Cappuccinos by visiting our website at www.cappuccinos.com spelled C-U-P-P-A-G-I-N-O-S, link in the description below, or contact us directly via phone at 0418-894-570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the show. So this time when you were in Croatia, you were in the youth team for Dinamo Zagreb. That coincided with Luka Modric's time at Zagreb. Did you ever have much to do with, with Luka Modric during those years? Yeah, well, not, not as much. So the first team coach is the one that brought me in. And they, he put me in the youth because he goes, Look, there's something there, but you need to learn the European way. So I would sometimes get 
called up to train with the first team, but when there were friendly games to play at third division side, the first team they'll come. We'll go with two teams. That will be majority will be the first team, and then some players from the youth. And I was lucky enough to get called up a few times. So I don't remember playing with him like in the same team, but I do remember playing in the same game where obviously he probably got subbed off at half time. But that year that Dinamo Zagreb, when I was there, was. It was just a different level. There was Eduardo de Silva, Choluca. They all got sold at the end of the year to Man City, Arsenal, Tottenham, Modric, all that. So that was an amazing year. But again, when I look back at it now, I just don't remember much because there were just iPhones hadn't come out yet. So you don't have all the information that you would have now. It was just these guys are good players and they're amazing in Croatia and they're playing for the national team. And I didn't really care because I was just focused on what I was doing and I was training twice a day for for a year, pretty much to learn the European way. So did you ever have much dialogue with Luka Modric or did you... No, not really. To answer your question, no, not really. There was one Macedonian player there who played for the first team. He, they hung out, but he was a very quiet character, Luka Modric. He actually lived near us, but yeah, just a very quiet bloke. I never really got the opportunity to have a chat with him, but my creation was horrible, so it wouldn't have really come to much anyway. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So your first professional <laughs> club was Majumari and then is it pronounced Shibana? Shibanik, yeah. Shibanik in, in Croatia. What are your memories of your time there? And you captained the club for a bit, didn't you? Yeah, I captained the Majumari club the last six months. My experiences, well, in those five years, I was relegated three times, uh, <laughs> which wasn't the best. So the first year we got relegated and then they... Pretty much, but my contracts were in Croatian, so they kind of held me to those contracts because I didn't really know what, what they read. It was like, oh, one plus one year option my first year, but their option was for them. So I had to play second division in Croatia. And then six months in, they would say, you have to sign another contract or you won't play. And my whole mentality was I need to play because I was representing Macedonia. So I signed it and then we luckily got promoted. And then that last year, the same thing happened. And when I re-signed, they made me captain of the club. But to be fair, it was a very wild ride. We had nine coaches in those three seasons. So it was very weird. What was the reason um, for that? Uh, the club was just very unstable. We never got paid when we were supposed to. And when we did, we probably got from 20% to 60% of our wages. It was always in financial crisis. You always hear rumours that your president sold this or director sold that. Or for such a small town, you hear so many things, but it didn't help us. But I never looked at it as this is my money-making thing. I just wanted to play football and prove to the haters that I could make it in football. And playing for Macedonia kept me in Europe and pretty much available to make a transfer elsewhere. Would you look at that time that you spent in Croatia, not in a negative experience, but does that teach you a lot about the reality of football in, in terms of it is, to a certain extent, a business? 100%. Look, the love that football player gives to football, it's something that you love as a kid. So if a business makes you a decision that you don't want to play football anymore, then you're not really in love with the game. That's how I approached it because there was a year in those five years where I didn't get paid for 12 months which was my final year, which was the year that I started playing for the first Macedonian national team. I didn't get paid once, and I was 23 years old. And now if I look at it, a 23-year-old nowadays, to not get paid for 12 months, they wouldn't do it. No, no so way. So that's what I'm saying. My love for the game and the fact that my drive was to make it. I don't know where it came from. It was just probably the fact that I didn't want to work on the work concrete, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. It was just, I just thought, you know what, give it a shot. 
you can always decide on another career later. But while in your 20s, and I'm in Europe, give it a go. You're here. There was options to come to Australia in the A-League, but I just said to my old man, I'm not finished here yet. I don't want to go to Australia without achieving something here and not just going to court to get my money. It was more, I want to make it in football. So that drove me to just, you get knocked down so many times, but you pick yourself back up and that whole negativity of that atmosphere in the club that I was at, I guess kind of made me a stronger person and to appreciate life more because if you don't get paid, you can imagine what environment you're surrounding yourself in and how you're going to play a game of football. And it was quite difficult with your teammates, but like I said, I was oblivious to it and blind and naive, which kind of helped me progress, or the best way to, to say it. And at that time, did you have your parents with you or did you have a girlfriend at the time? No, nah, no, nah, man. My first girlfriend was my wife. I had no family around me, no one that I knew in Croatia. It was just teammates and, you know, know their families, meet their families and you know, went out on my own, just winged it, man. Probably um, makes you grow up faster when you're younger and you're on your own like that. Well, pretty much. You know, it wasn't like I had no choice. I can't really say I was raised on the streets because when I look at in Croatia and you look at other third world countries like Brazil or whatnot, they have to make it. Mine wasn't that. It was like I could fall back on something. It's just that I didn't want to. I wanted to give this one a go. So that's probably why I was like, it drove me. Instead of making me lazy and be like, oh, I can just go and do that. I was more, I want to make it in this world. I want to one day, you know, look back at my career and say, I actually did it. That was pretty much my drive. It wasn't money driven, wasn't anything else, wasn't a business. It was more that for pretty much to my mid twenties. I wasn't the most skillful player, but I always say your ambition and your heart and your discipline will get you far. And that's pretty much where it got me because they'll play, they'll great on the ball and great crosses, great shooting, all that. Mine wasn't that. Mine was just purely drive and every game had to be like your final game and I guess that's how I looked at it and that's why I always had a smile on my face even though I was cheeky. I just loved to win and after losing for three, for being relegated three of the five years, losing that many times and if you can still come out of that with a smile on your face because you love what you do, I guess that was my drive. You spent a couple of years in Romania as well after this. Is it pronounced Stal Bucharest? Yeah. Stal Bucharest. So you won two league titles and a championship with the club. To be honest with you, I'm not really, I don't really know a lot about Romanian football. What's the culture like? Mate, when I went, I didn't know either. To be honest, my old man, I had an offer from Ukraine or this Romanian side and my old man just said, are you chasing money or are you chasing achievements? And I went, well, achievements, of course. He goes, because the Ukrainian side, you don't know what you're going to get. The Romanian side, they won the back then the Champions League in 88 so they're always up there and they hadn't won a league title in eight years so I just said you know what give it a crack he was a young coach he was in his mid-30s young team but apparently it was a big team I had no idea about this I just winged it and money-wise was probably worse than the other option the other option was more money this was more of a like I said my initial thing was to make it in football and yeah, it was an interesting contract that I signed. If I didn't play X amount of games in the first six months, they terminate my contract. But I backed myself and I went through it and, yeah, ended up winning the title. At the time, there was one club. They won the league the season before and they were in the Champions League and they beat Manchester United at Old Trafford that year as well. So it was a very strong league. There was about four or five clubs where the owners invested heavily 
in the team. So there was a very good standard of football and we were just a young, pretty much unknown team. There was probably two or three players that were quite recognised playing in the Romanian national team. And, mate, we finished first in our Europa League group stages in front of Stuttgart and Molde and I can't remember the other teams too, in Copenhagen. And we knocked out Ajax in the knockout stages where Ericsson was there and we lost to Chelsea in the next stage. So we actually were a very, very good side. That just clicked and I was fortunate enough to be a part of it. This time coincides when you began representing Macedonia as well and you played yes. for the national team or the senior team, 22 appearances. What what did that mean to you to put on that kit and represent your country, Macedonia? And also, was playing for Australia something that was ever a possibility for you? No, because no one in Australia knew who I was. The only time Australia knew about me was when I signed for Medjimori at my first professional contract. They sent a training compensation letter to the club saying that the club had to pay a quarter million dollars, which the club didn't have, obviously. Whatever, that's another story. But that was washed. It pretty much could have ended my career before it started. But that was the only time Australia actually reached out to me, which was to ask for money in my name. Other than that, Australia had no idea up until I played in the Champions League where I got a phone call from somebody. I can't even remember. I think it was SBS at the time. And I was... I was the only, there was only two Australian-born players playing in the Champions League that time, and it was me and Mark Schwarzer and Quinton. He was playing for Chelsea at the time, so they were in the same group stages. So that's probably where they heard about me. But yeah, that was the only time Australia ever heard. And even when I came to the A-League after a year and winning the title with victory, people still thought I was a foreigner, which I found quite funny, but eh, it was what it was. But representing Macedonia, I think that's what kept me in Europe. There was a year when I signed in Shibnik where I was over the age of 21. So I wasn't playing for the 21 national team and I wasn't playing for the first national team. So that year was pretty much what's going on because the club, we, we just scraped in to the first division. We didn't get relegated. So it was like, what am I doing? I was 22, I think, 22 or 23. And that year was a bit difficult, a bit of, I don't know what I'm doing. But then when I got called up, the coach got changed. It was John Toshak, he was this Welshman. He called me up and I started playing straight away and, you know, that kind of enabled me to be able to sign for a club like Romania or in South Bucharest or even the Ukrainian club. That's where they noticed me because I was a national team player and I was off contract. So that kept me, I guess, relevant in Europe and an option for some clubs. The issue with the Australian team, so did that, I suppose, affect your relationship with the Australian national team at all? You just never had anything to do with them because of that? I remember when I got my first call up for the Macedonian national team. It was a Wednesday, I believe. And I remember my dad called me and he goes, wait, hold off, maybe Australia will call. And I went, are you bloody serious? I don't think they even know who I am. Because <laughs> that was five years prior that they sent that training compensation thing. I go, no, nah, man, I go, even if they were to call, Macedonia has kept me in Europe. This is a gateway to something else. You just never know. So... I always say when you get into a, a crossroads, you have to turn one way and representing Macedonia was definitely one way and that path kept leading me to other options and what made me have a footballing career. So I would have never turned my back. I was quite loyal, even with agents and that, but that's the type of character that I was. I wasn't going to turn my back on Macedonia regardless of anything. And like I said, Australia only knew who I was about two years after I started playing for Macedonia. And you played against Australia, didn't you? That was my last game for Macedonia. Oh, there you go. Enough. Was that a weird feeling at all playing against Australia? Or do you always consider 
Macedonia, your country? To have a laugh, when we played them, I remember because we had a game two, three days before the qualifier. And, mate, we were absolutely wrecked. And it was just funny because I was playing in the A-League at the time. And the only person I knew there was Mark Milligan. And I think Australia played Germany and they beat him or something along those lines. And, you know, all the Australian reporters and Milligan didn't come. But we played together at Melbourne Victory. So I didn't know anybody, to be honest. I think just Nathan Burns, that was about it. And when we played him, I really couldn't be bothered because I was tired. It was a friendly game. And I knew when I flew back the next day to Melbourne, in a day's time, we had to fly to Wellington to play the Wellington Phoenix. So I wasn't looking forward to that. So to be honest, considering that was against the country that I knew, and when we sang the national anthem, I ended up singing under my tongue both national anthems. <laughs> um, because I knew the Australian one raised in school, you had to know it and all that. So I, I never sang the national anthem even for Macedonia. I was in, in, my, in my breath, I would sing it like internally, and I sang both when the national anthems were being held. So it was, it was a quiet night moment and then funny enough that was probably that was my last game after this time in europe and playing for the <clears throat> macedonian national team how did the a-league come about was returning to australia something that you had intentions of doing at some stage yeah i, I did have one i think I, I was telling myself after 30 i would come to australia but at the time with romania the last six months i didn't play i'm not sure why i still don't know until today the owner had gone to jail but that's the whole a different ball game and oh okay I just yeah it was Eastern Block and I pretty much said I don't want to be in the Eastern Block anymore eight years took its toll I had to go through court cases even Romania they didn't pay my full wage go to court with that so I was like I'm over this part of Europe and I pretty much eliminated Russia I had offers in Russia Bulgaria Ukraine all that I didn't want to go and I just wanted to go to the Western Bloc and I pretty much sacrificed it all because there was one club that contacted me in the Bundesliga, main, And the captain of the side was my teammate, a national team, Nordiske, and he said, yeah, they are actually interested. But they told me I had to wait out because it was a 2014 World Cup in Brazil. So I eliminated everything from the Eastern Bloc and I put all my eggs in one basket for Mainz. And what else did you do? I was just partying, just going on holidays and just watching the World Cup and at the end of the World Cup they called me saying they bought the Chilean left right, left back or right back for 7-8 mil and if they didn't get that deal done they would have taken me so that kind of killed me off with a lot of clubs at the time but I, I always said if I never risked it I never would have known what would have happened and that was my goal so I still had offers to play in the Eastern Bloc and I didn't want to so I was just hanging out in Macedonia to be honest with my uncle and auntie and looking at options and I just eliminated a lot of them I just didn't want to go back to the Eastern Bloc like I said eight years took its toll and then an agent called me from Australia I got offered to play in Macedonia I said no nah, I'll be alright respectfully of course and the agent kind of was talking a bit of crap and I didn't like his vibe because I had to deal with so many of those agents while I was in Europe and he just seemed to be the same person. And the one that I did know was a guy named Tony Rallis who helped me out with that training compensation that Australia called for in 2007-8. So I would say if I came to Australia, I would call him. So I gave him a call and I said, look, there's one agent that called me about this one club called Melbourne something. And he said victory, and they didn't. I never followed the A League, so I had no idea what this club was. I found it quite funny. It's called Victory, because I asked when was the last time they won the title, and he said like seven years ago. And I went, well, they're not really winning anything, are they? I know it was a bit, 
silly of me, but that's just how I was. I just winged it, and that's probably why my career ended up the way. Not ended up, but it was the way that it was because I just never looked too deeply into things. It was more if I had a right feeling, a right vibe, a good respect, and that's where I went to. And he called Musky, and Musky called me, and I said, "Look, I'm interested." You know, I think it was around September time, so a lot of the leagues in Europe had started. And I said, "Mate, give me 48 hours. Let me sort out my stuff here, and I'll let you know." He was calling me every hour, <laughs> wanting to know if I was coming or not, and he kind of pissed me off because I had to pretty much pack my life away for eight years in a couple of suitcases. And I said, "Musky, I'm on the way, man. I'll book the flight. I'll see you in two, three days." And that was it. Just winged it. Halftime break here on Amato's fifth quarter podcast, and I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated and I hope this episode is finding you well. If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility, which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. So you came at the right time. It was the 2014-15 championship season that you arrived in Australia. So that was a great squad under Kevin Musket with yourself, Archie Thompson, Mark Milligan, Fahd Ben Kalfala, Bessart Barisha, just to name a few. You won the double that year, so premiership and the championship. Needless to say, that was a pretty good homecoming for yourself in a playing sense. What are your memories from that season and winning the championship? Mate, it was, it was fun, to be honest. It was just a lot of fun because at the time, there was Del Pierre, like we said. Carl Falal, they just came from Europe, so that was experience. And for me, we just gelled straight away. We just kind of, they didn't speak the best English, but you didn't really have to because it was football talk. So it made me feel more comfortable. And Del Pierre was playing right next to me and Carfalo was left winger. So that whole left side, it was just comfortable for me. And we just had fun. I know Muskie will implement some tactics and formation and we'll just look at each other and say, boy, let's, let's just have some fun. And that's how it really was all year round. And there was a stage in the middle of the season where we weren't winning as comfortably, we weren't doing so well. I was injured for a few weeks and we said, no, we've got to win this league. I'm not going to come to Australia and not win the league. When we did win it, it was funny enough, all my mates from Europe said, mate, you won it two years in Romania, now you won it again. And I said, no, 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 we're not champions, we just won the minor premiership. And they go, well, you finished first on the table. I go, not in Australia. Couldn't understand what that meant. In Australia, that's um, not really a big no. deal, yeah. No, it wasn't a big deal. So when we did win the double, then I say we are champions and all that. So it was good those two years in Europe to win it after being relegated three times and then winning it in Australia, which was good because my family came to Melbourne and they watched the final and they got to experience that because they didn't get to experience it when I was in Europe, that whole celebration. So let's talk about the grand final. So 30,000 at Amy Park, massive rivalry against Sydney FC, you know, the big blue. You beat them 3-0 and take the title. Where does that achievement rank in, in your list? Well, what a wonderful sight Amy Park is today. This is how far Australian football has come in just 10 short years. Johnny Warren who would have turned 72 today, would be rightly proud. This was one of his visions, and 
the stands packed tightly at either end. Navy blue of Melbourne victory and sky blue representing Sydney FC. The 10th A-League Grand Final, there's the first challenge going live to 57 countries around the world. And he's a little bit unsure as to what to do with it. He's given it straight to Barbarossa who fires it across. And here's Barisha! With the grand final, it's like we were confident that we we're going to win. To be honest, I had this feeling, and it was like it's different. You can't prepare for it. Like when the game's finished, you're tired, and now you're going to go start drinking and go and celebrating. It was a different type of feel. I think it was even better because at the time we were supposed to play at Etihad Stadium, but the AFL didn't allow it. I remember that clear as day, and it was just a massive topic of discussion. And I think there was like another 20,000 outside of Amy Park. That would have come to Etihad if if the game had been there, but yeah, I think Amy Park was a great location for it. And I even remember the old rivalry versus Adelaide games as well. They were bloody they were great in that stadium as well. So I think that the fact there was twenty thousand outside, thirty inside, it was just a mad spectacle. And to be honest, I don't remember much of the game. I don't remember much of many games, but that one there, I just remember I was getting cramps, and I was like, "How are you going to drink when you've got cramps coming up your calf?" And we're only winning 1-0, but I was confident that we were going to finish them off. Like, they didn't have many chances. Like, we were just enjoying ourselves and having fun and bullying them on the field, which was even better. So when that final whistle did go, it was just, in a week's time, we all went to Vegas. Let's just leave it at that. What happens if Vegas stays in Vegas? Oh, well, it was fun. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's all you need to say. Yeah, it was good because all the boys, well, majority of the boys, I think 13 of us went up and... You know, we just continued the party. It was a whole week of partying in Melbourne. We met the sports minister and people's houses and events, etc. And then going to Vegas. It was a good two weeks of after that grand final. But we were confident we we're going to win regardless. I think I remember Graham Arnold said a few quotes that pissed us off. And we're like, I'm going to smack this guy in the face if he says one more thing. And we'll just show it on the field. And that's what drove us to even, drove us even more. So what about two years later? So the 2017 grand final again <laughs> against Sydney FC. That's one of the more sort of epic grand finals in A-League history. And unfortunately, you lose in penalties 4-2. But you win the Joe Marston medal. Now, it's it's pretty rare in any sport really for 
the championship game, the man of the match, to be on the losing team. Firstly, what was the emotion like from the victory players after that game to lose it? And then for you personally to win the medal in the losing team. I imagine it was a strange emotion. So it's Sydney FC who get us underway in the sky blue jerseys. We're going live to 115 countries around the world. The 12th Hyundai A-League Grand Final underway. Well, that's trying to break clear. Advantage played, a good one too by Jared Gillett. It's Bessar Barisha, little step over Barisha. Oh, what a goal! That is superb! Bessar Barisha, who simply lives for these occasions. He has scored again in a grand final. Ryan Grants, Jordi Bose to chest it down. Can they find the angle? Victory desperate. David Carney! It's in now! It's in off Ryan Grants! All square in the grand final! Incredible drama! We're all up as one. And there goes the full-time whistle for the fourth time in A-League history. We're into extra time at the end of a grand final. If this goes in, it's Sydney's crown. Mikovic scores! Dreams have come true in Sky Blue. Sydney FC are the champions of Australia for the first time in seven years. And again, it's victory who are the vanquished on the big day. A cruel, cruel way to lose it. And now I invite David Gillard to present the medal for the Hyundai A-League Player of the Grand Final. The coveted Joe Marston medal. And the winner of the 2017 Joe Marston medal is Daniel Jorzewski of the Melbourne Victory. Yeah, I was actually annoyed because I didn't get to take a penalty. I oh, yeah, you didn't take a penalty, did you? No. No, I didn't. And obviously, we obviously spoke the day before the game. Well, our training, and we knew, obviously, Muskie knew who was going to take the penalty. But I just had a good game, and I was just feeling confident. I was just, I was enjoying myself. Like I said, I always revert to having fun, regardless of how many fans were at the stadium or what title grand final or whatnot. It was just, I was having fun, and I said, man, I'm confident to take one. But the list had already been made, and I was like, oh, I hope we do win but I wanted to take a penalty. So the fact that we lost kind of, I felt bad because Marco Rojas missed it, Carl Valeri missed it, and they had not missed one penalty at training at all, which kind of sucked, especially for them. But I think at the time, I think Sydney FC were very, very good. That was probably their best football for those two years. That year and next two years, they were playing great football around the Graham Arnold. That year's so, the, the, best, the best season in A-League history. Yeah, like you would say they deserved it. We were a bit on and off. We were kind of lucky that year that Brisbane Law and, and Wanderers played in the Asian Champions League because that kind of made them lose games and that made us finish second. We weren't playing the best football that we did two years prior. But again, it's a grand final. It doesn't really matter. And I remember going on the pitch and the pitch was horrendous. We were like, come on, man. Like, you can't play a grand final on this. But it was just going to be a dogfight. And at the end of the game, when that happened, we went over to our family and friends in that far corner. And I was with my nephews. I was with my girlfriend at the time, which is now my wife, and they were all there. And some lady came up to me and said, oh, you're going to go collect the medal. I'm like, all right, whatever. She said the name of it, I had no idea. And then as I'm walking, I, like, I told my nephews to come with me. They were small at the time. And I looked at the boys, and they weren't coming. And I was like, why are they not coming? And she's like, oh, you won some medal. I was like, is there a prize money to that? Or <laughs> I'm going on holidays, I want prize money. <laughs> as a joke. And when they said that Joe Mars, and I was like, oh, gee, that's pretty cool but they said you can't do a speech because 
I think Fox Sports, they you know, bypass the time and just go collect your medal and walk off. I was like, oh, that's sweet. And there was no prize money. But I think winning that, you come into the change room and it's a different, like you've just lost the game. We lost the grand final and we had to go into the press conference and I was just dreading someone to ask because I had already signed for Newcastle Jets for the following year. And I was just hoping no one asked me that silly question because you can't put a smile on your face after you lose. But you win this medal and you just kind of just say it is what it is. That's football. You can't plan anything. And it sucked because I would have liked to leave victory with a bang, which this was an individual bang, not a team bang. But it was good on an individual part. So you'd already committed to Newcastle Jets <clears throat> before the grand final? Yeah, a month and a half prior to that. So why the move to Newcastle? I mean, you'd won Premiership, Championship, FFA Cup. You'd also played in the Champions League with Melbourne Victory. Were you just looking for a new challenge or was there, um, was there another reason? I didn't, because of my past experiences, I always waited to the end of the year to know where my fate would be. And even when we won the grand final in the 14-15 season, my contract had finished. And I didn't want to experience that again. So when I signed for two years, towards the end of that season, I said to Muskie, I went, well, my agent spoke to Muskie and was like, what's the chances of me knowing? And he said, you have to wait to the end of the year. And I didn't want to do that. I was sick of it to be honest. I didn't want to know where my fate was going to lie. And then with my agent, I said, well, let's go shopping. Let's just go see what's out there. And Newcastle just approached. So I think Martin Lee had just bought the club and I looked at it as potentially going to China because he had a club there. And I was like, you know what? Let's give it a go. It's an interesting project and let's do it. And at the time, I knew Andrew Naboot was there and we had played together at Melbourne Victory. So I asked him and the vibe in Newcastle's cool. It's nice. When I signed, they were sixth on the table. By the end of the season, they finished last. And I'm there scratching my head saying, I'm going from a grand final to the team that finished last. And the coach got sacked. So it was like, well, you know what? You've committed. It is what it is. Muskie even said to me, he goes, in your contract, you should have put, you know, if the coach gets sacked, you can have a decision because they wanted to keep me. And I said, well, look, I asked you two months prior and you gave me no answer, which kind of eliminated. There was a few other clubs as well, but I remember that one there and I said look it's up we know the grand final and all this stuff but football see you when we play up I guess it was just that type of thing it was beautiful three years and I loved victory and I loved everyone around it and my best mates are from Melbourne as well so that's football you just pack up your bags and leave and figure it out that Newcastle season was really interesting and almost a bit random how it all gelled and came together so you had Ernie Merrick there as as coach and there was Dimi Petrados and Roy O'Donovan, Riley McGree, Topol Stanley, Bogard. A really good squad. You finished second and made the grand final from nowhere. What do you think made that team just click overnight? I'll tell you right now, it's Ernie Merrick. Great coach. The, the most calmest, funniest, driest person you'll ever meet. But all he said all year, back four, work it out. And I want as many, many numbers in the box as possible. And... That simple instruction, we scored that many goals that year. We defended very well. We were a team unit. Injuries were minor. We didn't have that many injuries. But I think everyone just didn't expect us to do as good as we did. And then once they did realize, oh, these guys are actually good, we were just on a different level. We just connected and we were all high in confidence. And Newcastle was a fortress and we couldn't lose. And it made us get to the grand final, which was great. So the 2018 Grand Final was one of the most controversial games we've seen here in Australia. 
against your old club, the victory. You had that lost camera footage with the VAR offside, the Royal Donovan high kick late in the game. What are your memories of that game and, and what was the emotion like to lose that one compared to, say, 2017? Will it be the Jets who saw and secure a second title? Or will it be another Melbourne victory? A record fourth in the A-League era. We're about to find out, and the players are about to get a very Novocastrian welcome. Does go towards Donaghy, who met it at that far post, and it's Barbarossas, and it's touched in, and victory have the advantage. Costa Barbarossas claiming the credit. It's the earliest goal ever in a grand final, and 4,000 victory fans on the far side of the stadium go wild. Now, James Donaghy, well, that was my suspicion. That's yeah. offside. He's clearly offside. I mean, are we using VAR or not? Victory still with a narrow advantage. The whole ground rises. Petratos into the Victoria. Lawrence Thomas has been absolutely cleaned up. And there's going to be a red card issued, the seventh in grand final history for the late arrival on Lawrence Thomas and it's Roy O'Donovan who gets his marching orders. The Jets were desperate, but Roy O'Donovan a little much, too much so. I think this is madness from Roy O'Donovan. I mean, that, that's oh madness. Dear. Oh, oh dear. dear, oh dear. Well, that gets worse when you see it second time around. Oh dear, oh dear. Wow. Well, that's quite frankly disgraceful well that'll as be that. desperate as he is yeah. to get his team back on terms and there is no excuse for that as we move into the eighth minute of stoppage time and there it is kevin musket's team are the record breakers a fourth championship for melbourne victory as 30,000 newcastle hearts are broken on a personal i'll thought Imagine getting Joe Marsden two years in a row in two different clubs. That would have been pretty funny. No but one's ever I done that. Time, yeah, it would have been something different. But I remember that even when that goal went in, and we all saw on the screen, and, you know, to be honest, I just, you know, everyone was booing and whatnot. And I was just like, oh, we're going to score. Like, honestly, I, we didn't even care. We didn't even let it. It's 1-0 to them. Yeah, no worries. But we didn't look at it because we thought we might have missed something on the screen where he's not offside. James Donnicke, I remember. So we're like, just keep going. And Lawrence Thomas had the best game of his life because he saved everything under the sun. Keep persisting. And that was our mantra. Just keep persisting and keep working and it'll it'll happen. It didn't, unfortunately, but it didn't help that in the 10th minute you can see it. And at the time, I knew victory all the boys. And Carvalheri especially, he just knew how to pass the bus and put himself and stop the play and all that stuff. We knew it all. We just couldn't score, which is probably one of the handful of times that whole season where we just couldn't score a goal. I know half missed chances, which he's probably still having nightmares over, to be honest. It was just one of those things. Topless Stanley hadn't won in four previous attempts. So we were just all talking about it and we're like, we'll get him. Even at half time, don't worry, we'll get him. And I know Ernie took me off because I had a yellow card and a few tackles that were a bit... My timing wasn't the best. So just in case I got a red card, it took me off towards the end of the game, the last 15 or so. Just so you know, we were still going forward and that whole Roy Donovan thing, he was, the poor bloke was concussed. He had a fractured eye socket from what happened at halftime with Berisha where he got headbutted. So he didn't know what was going on, to be honest. Not not to cover him, but that's exactly what happened. Because I remember I was speaking to him and he was looking straight through me during the game and that whole incident didn't help 
for him and more for us the next year because we got 10 match ban but yeah it was a very painful I think it was more painful than the year before because of that circumstance that had happened over technology that hurt the most especially for the Newcastle community because I watched the game in prep for this interview and it just seems like everything that could have gone wrong for Newcastle went wrong that night with the decision yeah. and then the high kick and you losing the game to the club that you had just left. What was that emotion like watching them win a championship against you? To be fair, during the season, they were pretty poor. And I remember halfway during the season, there was speculation that Musk was going to get fired. And I spoke to a few boys you know, during the year. They what's going on there? They go, man, we're just not clicking. We're not doing well, blah, blah, blah. And then once Muskie re-signed, it's like everyone woke up. And they just knew how to grind out a result. And that's how they were to the end. And then to lose to them, to be honest, after the game, so a little thing that I would have, I'll bring a bottle of champagne. Because we won the first game, I'll bring a bottle of Dom or whatever it is to the change room and then we'll drink it after the game because we won the final. At the final that I got Joe Marsden, I had the bottle, another bottle with me, but I didn't get to drink it. So I brought it with me to the Newcastle grand final. And we didn't win it, so... I got the bottle and another two that I had in my backpack and I went to the victory change room and I gave it to him. I said, boys, congratulations, well done. You don't deserve it, but you won. So who cares? <laughs> so, you know, I had a lot of respect for Pietro and Muskie and all of them and it did suck to lose. It didn't matter who we lost to, it just sucked that we lost and in the way that we lost, which for Newcastle, the community and everyone there, it was just really, you know, really hurt. Newcastle's never really been that great since that game as well not not saying that, that game's the reason for that but since then they haven't really looked they haven't got anywhere near a championship since then no it didn't the next year we finished seventh or eighth or something i don't even remember in the season it really affected a lot of players to be honest we couldn't get they couldn't get over it because of what had happened and then we we're playing and then we we're preparing for the asian champions league and we got through to like a knockout or whatever it was and we lost in korea but yeah it just didn't connect as it did the previous season, which wasn't the best feeling, but same thing, my contract was expiring and then you turn into that selfish person because it's a team sport, but at the end of the season, you got to know where your fate lies and Newcastle didn't want to give me what I wanted. Yeah, because you had the next season you played for Newcastle, but then you went to Western Sydney. What prompted this move to the Wanderers? Was that your decision or was that the club's decision to move you on? No, well, they gave me an offer. It just wasn't what I wanted. It was only a year, which, you know, I spoke to me. I didn't even talk financially yet. I go, why just one year? I was 31. And I said, I don't want a one-year deal. I go, why would I want to? I'm not at that age yet. And that's what they wanted. I didn't want that. And I go, well, my agent called me. I think it was around Christmas, New Year time. And he pretty much just said, Wanderers are giving you what you want. And... I knew JP at the time, who was assistant coach, who was with me at Melbourne Victory. And I loved him as a coach. I knew him very, very well. And they had a project, built a new stadium, they built a new training facility. And he sent to me at the time that it was the right time to go to the Wanderers. And the fact that I'm from Western Sydney, which made it even better for my family, they get to see me more. And the area just, it's where I was born and raised. So it was kind of like, a great situation for me to go and see Sydney, which I left, I guess, 12 years prior to that. Yeah, because at the time, Marcus Babbel was the coach, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah, so that was the time when 
it was seen that Western Sydney were like rejuvenated. They had the new stadium, new coach, everything was was new. He got sacked early in 2020, and then what? Maybe a week, two weeks later, COVID hits the league, and you play what a couple of games in front of no fans, and then just everything shut down. It seems like things for the club were on the right track, but just these circumstances, just things went from bad to worse. What was your view of that time, sort of late 2019, early 2020? A year to forget, to be honest. I think we started off well from memory, the first three, four games, and then we just started going into a slump and Babel didn't know what to do to fix it. And then he got the sack. Then JP took over and we were going in the right direction. Like club hadn't been in the top six for a few years. So we were heading in that direction and then COVID hit, like you said, and then the whole financial situation being on JobKeeper and, you know, the club not pretty much always having meetings with the players' unions and what other clubs are doing, what we're doing. It's a fight against the club for your bread and butter, which wasn't fair, wasn't good, but majority chose that when you can't do anything. So you get back into fitness, you get back into some sort of routine in this COVID war that we all hit. I always looked at the bigger picture and I said, well, why are we whinging about something? People are dying and people are not the best situation and it's not just us that's affected it's the whole world so you know you can't be selfish in that in that way but on a football front it was like it was such a up and down season and then we had to play I think five games in two weeks or three weeks it was something ridiculous like that which for me was okay because I was used to it in Europe but it was just a weird feeling because it was like you're just playing friendly games all the time and yeah we unfortunately just missed the boat in the top six but to be fair it was a very, very weird atmosphere and environment in the in the team, in the league, in everything. I couldn't even tell you who won the grand final. That's how much we would just get this season over and done with because that's how it kind of was. 2020 was Sydney FC. But yeah, I, no, I agree. Like That year, 2020, sport in general, any <laughs> sport, was just not the same. It was just the stadium's half capacity. It just wasn't. You couldn't get into it the way you can now and the way you could before. Yeah, no, it really was bad. I remember because I think the NRL was starting and AFL was starting and then you're looking at what they're doing and then you look at us. It was like, get this league finished because of the contract that they have with Fox Sports or the TV rights. And it was just so much negativity. It was, it was so poor on the football front. And then you look at the NRL, what they're doing, the, they're saying, we're going to start on this day with this many people. And it was like, well, why don't we do that? And then you're getting involved. You're, you're becoming from a football player to somebody that's, more than that, which I didn't like. We're only football players. You've got governing bodies. You've got people that have the right to do it. And we all just thought pretty much it was like a waste of a year, which kind of was, wasn't was good. But considering the circumstance of COVID, some win, some lose. And I think football lost in that part. And especially with the Wonders, with the fans, with us rebuilding that team and that whole environment kind of was just against us. I would agree because even looking at the AFL and the NRL, what they did was the best they could have done in those circumstances. And I understand that no one could have ever foreseen that pandemic happening, but it seemed like the A-League in particular really, really struggled with with what happened. It seemed at one point, not is the A-League finished, but how long is this going to take for the A-League to recover? Yeah, and it was pretty disappointing and a lot of things was like, if we don't agree to pretty much cutting our wages massively, then the league won't exist. So how much more pressure do you want to put on us? Like, why are we being put in that situation where if we don't make the biggest sacrifices, the league's not going to exist? 
And that's one thing that sucked by me. I was like, that's not right. It shouldn't be put that way. We're the entertainers. We're not the ones that make all the other decisions. But why are we the ones suffering the most? And that's what hurt me with a lot of decisions in the league and kind of disappointed me with a lot of all those people that made those decisions and thought they was actually right. But I just found it hilarious that soccer in this country will not die. And the fact that that was the main topic, I went, you guys are all idiots. And I've expressed that verbally in those Zoom chats. And then I go, you're idiots if you think soccer's not going to exist in this country. But that was the argument. And I guess we had to do that for the soccer to survive. But anyway, that's a whole different story. But COVID was very weird. It was a horrible time, to be honest. Even just thinking about early 2020 just brings back horrible memories for everyone. Yeah, just everyone's mentality, like people in the street, everyone. It was just so much negativity, which was everyone had some sort of sacrifice and had to make some sort of sacrifice. You were forced into it and it was, you know, hearing other people's stories, you kind of look at yours and go, I'm not that bad. But then you look at the AFL and NRO, you look at other codes and like, why are they doing well? And we're just going further and further into a deep hole. But then... You know, we look at the bright picture in life. At least you're healthy, at least you're happy. Some way, at least you're healthy, you just move forward and, you know, football will, will find its way. Before we get into the final stretch of this episode, we need to take one more break here for three-quarter time on A5Q. Now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete & Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there, moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favor and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, DMATO10, spelled D-A-M-A-T-O-1-0, you'll score yourself an extra 10% off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. So after you did resume playing, Carl Robinson came in. He came in as, as the coach and you departed the club soon after. What happened there? I would love to say it. it was, I think the season started end of December, start of January. And a few weeks before the start, I remember I had a bit of an injury. And I came back and then there was these reports that I was unhappy in the club and the club wanted to get rid of me. Funny, I was getting, my phone started going crazy. Even from the club, like the directors and that were saying, oh, do you want to leave? I went, apparently you want to get rid of me. Well, what would I want to leave for? Like on a personal, I had the most assists I had in one year. Performance-wise, I did pretty good with the fans, with the socials, with the club. I thought I was doing well. And they said, well, we have the same, I guess, the same vision with you being with our club in the future. I go, me too. So I don't know where these rumours came from. Anyway, tell them story short, after round one, I never saw the field 
maybe once or twice in the next two months, three months. So obviously went to the coach, asked him. He didn't even give me an answer. The club had no idea because they left the sports department to the sports people. So that Carl Robinson still to today never gave me an answer, which kind of sucked because if that was the case, they didn't want me. There were other clubs that would have wanted to take me and they offered me something. So I guess me being loyal and trustworthy kind of bit me in the, in the backside because I was sitting in the grandstand, not even on the bench, and I wasn't injured. So you never even got an answer as to why you're not playing. It's not like they sat you down and said, look, you know, you explore your options. You're not in our plans. They just left you hanging. No. Nah. Well, John Tatsmith, who was the CEO, he, like, I was really open with him and we called me into his office. He goes, mate, what's going on? I go, you tell me. I goes, you come in every day, everything seems sweet. I go, that's how I am. I'm happy. He goes, but you're not happy. I go, no, I've got a fake smile on my face, mate, because I don't know what's happening on the field. When I'm on the pitch, that's my safe haven. That's my escape from the world. That's my biggest problem right now, and no one's giving me an answer, which, you know, I'm not the one to make an issue or make a situation or if I deserve to be on the bench, fair enough. But tell me, and he goes, look, that's the sports department, which made made sense. I go, well, hopefully someone from there speaks to me. Then the next day, that Carl Robertson spoke to me and gave me nothing. So he did that old crap, oh, when you work hard, I'm like, I'm 33 years old. What do you mean work hard and prove myself? You know what you're going to get from me. If you don't want me, let me know. Never gave me that answer. So, And we weren't winning. If we were winning, and I said, if we're winning, not a problem. I'll sit on the bench. I'll always support the team no matter what because it's the boys. But the environment in the club was very, very poor in the change room as well. He didn't bring a good environment. He created things I want to speak about that were very not enjoying yourself, which is what my whole mantra was in football. Enjoy yourself, have fun, it's sport. Just created negative poison. And I was there for another three, four months. But yeah, had office to go, but my wife was pregnant and we were expecting our first child at the time. So I left that outside and tried to keep a positive environment in my home. That wasn't the best timing. So it seems like you don't have much time for Carl Robinson and you didn't have a great relationship with him. I never, I every morning said hello to the bloke. I never caused issues in the change room. I never caused issues at training. He wanted me to train better. I would train twice as hard. So I never gave him a reason to hate on me or not play me. But it made sense. They didn't, we didn't finish in the top six and he got sacked the following year. So I guess even though I was right, left a big scar in my football. You haven't spoken to him since, obviously? No, well, funny enough, I was about to jump on the panel on Channel 10 when he got the sack, and I said my two cents. I said, you know, he wasn't a good coach. Obviously, that's why he got the sack, but I feel sorry for his family because he would have got the brunt of the Wanderers losing all the time and all the fans and all that. But you know what? He wasn't a good coach, and it goes to show you speak a big game, but you're not good. And... You harm people's lives by your decisions. I would just have—I would have had respect for him if he actually told me the truth. But because he never did, he was a, a good salesman, I would say, and he knew how to talk. But I, I went straight through it. There's no grey areas with me. It was black and white, and his whole life is grey. So never give you a direct answer. So I'd, as a person, I don't have respect for him. So, but I never caused him issues or never did anything in the change room, and that's why I still have a good relationship with the club regardless of the coach. Yeah, because Western Sydney, they're a big club and they've always been seen as a big club, but they've made a couple of grand finals and they won the, the Champions League a few years ago, but they haven't really achieved what 
they're expected to achieve, if that makes sense. And I'm not, not saying that that's Carl Robinson's fault, but there's obviously a reason they haven't achieved as much on-field success within the A-League as what everyone expects them to every year. Yeah, that's very, very true. And that's why when I went there, I looked at it as a great project for me to be a part of. I'd won the league in Romania. They hadn't won it for eight years. We won it. I came to victory. It was a similar feel. Went to Newcastle first year, a similar feel. Yeah, we lost the final. And I said, you know what? This could continue it on with Wanderers and it'll mean a bit more because I'm born and raised around the corner from the training facility. So that was my project. And I said, I want to be a part of it to build it. But it just seemed like they would make mistakes after mistakes in the sports department of the coach or people in there. And that's why it was always so much negativity. And just the atmosphere in there was never... You have mates in the team, but it wasn't a collective thing like we had at Newcastle Jets or a Melbourne Victory. And I just couldn't figure out why. And even up until now, now I was actually doing well with Mark Rudin and all that. But in that time that I was there, even the year after, it just didn't seem like everyone was playing for each other. We were playing just to play, which was sad because a club like that should be bigger than what they are. The culture was obviously not quite there. Football in general, if you have a great culture, that's pretty much a big percentage of you being in the top half of the table or winning the league. If you have a great culture, that's football. When you don't have a good culture, all bets are off. You're not going to expect to do a lot or do that good in the year. I know when Adelaide won it, I spoke to Bruce Jitte and he goes, mate, the boys are like brothers. And they were finishing last the first seven rounds of the year. They ended up winning it. And that's because it was a good team culture. And that was what I experienced in my footballing career as well. Just that Wanderers could not change that culture. It was just some poison in there and Carl Robinson made it even worse. But it just wasn't there. And it was probably from the decisions that they made. But it seems like right now, they're heading in the right path. So you're always hopeful, you're always optimistic, but that's football. After this time in Western Sydney, obviously it wasn't a great experience for yourself, but Melbourne City came around after this. Now, I believe you were an injury replacement player and you were only there for a couple of months. I was approached three, four weeks before I got there by Patrick Kisnovo. He called me and I said, mate, I would come today, but my wife is due. And she was 39 weeks pregnant. So she was due in a week time. Unfortunately, my little one came 10 days later. So that was prolonged me getting there. And at the time, Atkinson was injured. And they didn't know how long he'll be out for. A couple of months, maybe to the end of the year. So that's where I would have come in. But I said, look, I can't just pack up and leave. Family is more important than football than anything in the world to me. My wife's going to give birth to our first son. So I couldn't leave. So that prolonged it for another three, three and a half weeks. And then when it was back and forth, back and forth, Maybe it will happen, maybe it won't. I'm not sure. And I just said, you know what? It is what it is. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And then two weeks after my son was born, contract came through and jumped on a flight. My wife drove a little one to Melbourne and stayed there for the end of the season. But to me, that season was finished. I was just done. You only played a handful of games for the city, didn't you? Yeah, look, for me, it was just being in a good environment. I didn't really care if I played or not. I just didn't want to go to Wanderers. The training facility, I didn't want to go to training. I didn't want to see the people there. I didn't want to see my teammates, the coach. I didn't want to be there. I was happy to just stay at home and not get paid. I didn't want to be there. So your love of football was totally diminished after that? Yeah, you can say that. Just that environment, that club. I just didn't want to be there anymore. Then I went to Melbourne City and they had a great atmosphere. It was was loving. I loved it. It brought me back. What was PK like? 
Mate, what a dude. <laughs> we had battle because when, when he was still playing, I was at Victory and we had some good battles. He's a big bloke. And I never really spoke to him after a game or that. But then when he was the coach at the Melbourne City women's team, and I saw him once or twice at Amy Park and top bloke. But I never would have thought that he would have been my boss down the track. But no, nice bloke. He's just funny. He's like one of the boys. But when he's a coach, when he has that respect, he has respect of everybody. And he doesn't care who what you are. And that's why he is where he is now in France is top bloke and just all about respect and a good atmosphere. So you had a very short time at Melbourne City, but it sounds like you had a good time. When was it time for you to retire? Did you ever consider playing on after Melbourne City? I did, to be honest. My agent, obviously, it was COVID time. And literally then, even that final, if you remember, when they played Sydney FC, it was like COVID was hitting again 50%, full of stadiums, all this and that. And Melbourne went into a lockdown right after they grand final. So I was in Melbourne for the next four months. And in that time, you know, you have a lot of time to look at your life. Oh, my son was just born and I was just loving the fact of just being with him all the time. And I went to go for a run to keep my fitness up. I really couldn't be bothered. I didn't have that push or ambition. And when my agent will come back, oh, this club, I'm thinking of it, they're back and forth for a good month and I just kind of got turned off and I just said, I don't want to play anymore. There will be a contract. I got an offer to go back overseas. I didn't want to do it. I was just enjoying my life with my son and my wife and just life away from football. Football started getting me angry, if that makes sense. Player signing here, player signing there, waiting for an offer for me and all that political part. I just told my agent, you deal with it. And in that time, my interest just lighted elsewhere. You know, I wanted to open a football academy and my business partner now he's came to me and he goes let's do it together and then channel 10 approached me and it was like guiding me away from playing and to be honest I, even till today i don't have that itch to play my i was done basically you knew that that was it for you you just didn't have the passion to play anymore and and you were happy to retire because <clears throat> you know, some players ret- retire before they want to or injuries whatever but you'd had enough yeah like look i was happy with my body to be honest like uh I was only 30, I'm only, I was only 33, sorry, like my body, I put through, you know, all the hours of extra work to be fit, to do all the right things, like my head, big injuries, everything was heading the right direction. But in your mind, if you're saying I'm done, I'm done, and that was me, and I said I'm done. And I'm happy that I can pick up my son, I can bend down without taking half an hour to get up, my knees were hurting, none of that stuff. So I was happy to retire without any, without being forced to retire. And then when I announced to myself and my family, I'm not playing anymore, I got an offer to play in the A-League and I turned it down. Who did you get an offer from? Mariners. Okay. And yeah, yeah. You, spoke to... you never considered taking it? No. I had a Zoom chat with them. I was in Melbourne at the time and with Ken Shemri, with Nick Montgomery and you know we had a nice chat and what they're expecting, what that. And the next day my wife goes, oh, you know, we can move up there and all that stuff. And I said, no, I'm, I'm done. Like, I don't want to play. She goes, okay, well, fair enough. Like, to have that deep conversation and she goes, as long as you have no regrets. And I said, I looked back at my career and I said, there's no regrets. I did what I wanted to do. I'm content. I'm happy. Let's move on to the next adventure because I knew football will stop at some time. Yeah, probably thought mid-30s or whatnot, but at 33, healthy, got a young family. I'm ready to move on. And I didn't even want to announce it, to be honest, but I kind of had to with the Academy and with Channel 10. So... I didn't even want to announce it. I was just happy just to, you know, float off move into on the sunset. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. And there's no script on how you should retire. And I said, I don't want to do it. I just 
move on, hang up the boots, and that's it. And that was all she wrote. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> There's no grand finale ceremony or anything like that. It was just, <laughs> nah, let's just move on and figure out what we're doing, and that's what I'm doing now, and couldn't be happier. In your career, what's the highest or toughest level you ever played in? Champions League. When I was growing up, waking up at four in the morning to watch a game that was on SBS, I had no idea what game it was going to be. I just knew on a Tuesday and a Wednesday there was a Champions League match. And my alarm clock was the Champions League anthem. You know, that, the champions. And watching that as a kid, I didn't know. My old man would wake up and goes, what are you watching? I go, it's just a game. He goes, who's playing? That doesn't matter. It was a Champions League. So that's me growing up and knowing that tournament. Then when I moved to Europe, remember, there were no iPhones back then, so you can't really check up. You have to read the paper to know when the next game was on. And then to be a part of it, after going through that much struggle, for me, was it was during the game that I realized where I was. And I think it was playing Chelsea, so it was our second game in the group stage, that I realized, holy crap, I'm actually playing this, what I used to watch all the time. And that, that for me, amazing. it was amazing, but it was the worst game I ever played. So <laughs> it didn't help out. But it was just an eye-opener when I was at that game. I never really realized I sat back and said, wow. It was like, yep, next game, two games a week. So for me, it was just, I have no time to reflect. And when I realized where I was at the time, it was just, I was like, wow, I'm, you know, ticked that off the box, even though I had no box. So, and you mentioned playing in Europe. There were times where you didn't get paid or didn't get paid on time or didn't get paid 100%. How do you try and fix that? You don't. Or you just cop it? You just cop it. Like COVID, everyone's in the same boat. It was a similar thing with the rest of the team. And you know there's courts after. Went through a court case, which took a couple of years. But you just put your boots on and go and play, whether it's snowing, raining, windy, sunny, whatever it is. You're there for football. And that's how I looked at it. And I never gave up. I think that was pretty much it. I just never gave up. And I said, money will come and go, but if you leave a legacy, it'll last forever. I guess that old catchphrase. That's pretty much how I looked at it. And like I said, what 23-year-old would you know that has no money in the bank and playing with players that have a lot of money, but you're on the pitch, it doesn't really matter. You're playing for the national team, you're playing in the first division. That will sort itself out in the future, hopefully. And I'm lucky enough that he did. I just never gave up hope. There's no formula, man. I wish I'm trying to teach these kids. There's no formula in football. There's no right or wrong. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. You just got to go it for took it. Me, yeah. took me five years as a professional to get there. It'll, it'll come. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be, man. I was never lucky. So I love the attitude of you just winged it, but you made it. You just loved the game that much that you just went with it. Yeah. I, was, I know you refer to certain things, but I refer to it this way. When you want to go out you know on Saturday night I'm going out to party and you expect to have a great night and you don't. But then on a Saturday night when you just wing it, you end up having the best night of your life. Oh, and that's that me 100% growing true, up. yeah. If you're over planning and, and you're like, oh, we're doing this, we're doing that, you end up having a shit time. It's going to be the best night, New Year's Eve, all that, and it's very disappointing. So I've had a few of those nights growing up. I didn't go out much, but when I did, I went, well, this sucks. I'm just going to wing it. And by having that mentality in your own personal life, in your life of career, that's how I just took it because every time I planned something, I was disappointed. So I didn't plan it. When you plan something and then it doesn't go exactly the way you think it will go, you end up telling yourself that it was bad when really maybe it wasn't? Yeah, you start to do your head in. It's a normal human thing to do. So that's why I just kind of have no expectations because when you don't have expectations, you can't be disappointed, which is good and bad. But at the same time in football, there's more disappointments 
my wife says it perfectly. People don't see football. They, when they see the high, it's amazing. But when they see the low, they don't see it. And there's more lows than highs. It's just how you overcome it and how you persist in life. And that's in football, it's exactly that. When you're like, I'm going to have a good game today or I want to do this, I want to do that. And then the ball doesn't go where you want it to go. You just created more anger towards the game when it's actually self-inflicted. So that's how I always looked at it. And you have no expectation. Like I said, when I realized I was playing in the Champions League, it was during the theme song. We're playing Chelsea at home in front of 50-something thousand. I had the worst game. I scored an own goal. There you go. And I got yeah, booed yeah. off the field. So that's why I looked at it. That was a life lesson. Don't have an expectation. Just enjoy the game as it comes. And we had a game three days later and the national team and every three or four days had a game. So you have no time to think of it. Because when you do, you're actually doing worse for yourself in your personal life and your career. So no expectations. You can't be disappointed. What was that like when you scored the own goal? It sucked, man. <laughs> <laughs> it sucked. I think the worst thing was even it was Andre Schuller. He actually ripped me one the whole game. I was just so confident I could win the ball. And every time I went in, it would hit him in the knee and it would go behind me and he assisted and I think I got subbed off like the 65th minute and dude, we're playing at home and I got booed off the field. And I was like, oh, crap. And I remember looking at Schwarzer who was on the sideline like, all right, what's going on here? And he looked at me and I just went, and he didn't know I was Australian. When we played at Stanford Bridge, I went up to him and I said, hey, g'day, mate. It was just one of those funny moments. But yeah, I look back at it now, but I was in absolute tears after the game. I was devastated. I was like, you idiot. Why did you have so much pressure on a game of football when football is an enjoyable thing? Well, no one ever plans, oh, I'm going to go score an own goal today. No, but you plan on having a good game. And the flip side, I was, I didn't have a good game. So I stopped telling myself, have a good game. (laughs) Just go and play and enjoy the game. And that's how I was for the next 10 odd years or well, seven years after that, whatever it was, eight years. It worked for me, doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody else, but that's what I would preach, that's what I'd tell people and like yourself and even kids in the academy, don't put pressure on a game, it's just a sport. Enjoy it and love it. You gave me what everything I own and it's the best thing in the world. I'm, I'm still a kid. So your academy, could you give us maybe a bit of information about that? People listening in want to get involved, how can they hit you up? Oh man, look, uh, football academies are everywhere. The, whatever you believe in, it's a differential. Like for me, when I speak about the academy, we, we, my business partner and I run the only sanctioned academy in New South Wales called CVFI Academy out in Concord. And at the same time, we have our own private academy called Stella Football, where we do tournaments and all this stuff. So football is a very basic fundamental game. Everyone passes, everyone stops the ball, everyone runs, and you keep learning those stages bit by bit, but you never jump a step. We do that. We specify on your individual talent and what you need to improve on with habits. And man, we are very calm. Oh, no, as a football player, I wasn't as calm, but as a coach, or what you would say, very calm, very, we'll get there. And it's a, it's a process. Everyone wants to be a superstar tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. It's a process. We have different stages where your level is at, and always, there's always room to improve. And we always persist at it, but we always create a great culture a fun culture like how I played and if you believe in it, if you like it, football's a fun game. We're, we're there during the week and it's on Instagram, on Facebook or whatever, Facebook, sorry, websites and all that stuff. So yeah, if you want to come, we're there. <laughs> Just having yeah, fun. That, that's that's right. It's meant to be fun. That's why you play it. You don't play it for any other reason other than just because you enjoy the game. Yeah, when it's disappointing. When we were kids, we enjoyed it. We didn't have anxiety playing a game or something. Now it's quite often and we try to 
eliminate that from people's games, from people's mentalities. So putting pressure on yourselves. I know today's society is very different than when we grew up, but the game is still around ball. Good, enjoy it. Good, to love it. And that's what we always will preach. That's what I preached and I believed in my whole career. And we just had a good hour chat about it, and that was the exact same thing I did the whole time. Just enjoyed the game, regardless of how many hurdles you have to overcome. I just enjoyed it, and that's how we do it in our academy. You will learn the most when you're calm, not when you're stressed. That's in life in general, not just football. Absolutely. So, Daniel, just to close up, I've got three last questions for you. In your entire career in any league, any club, who's the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, who's the best coach you ever played under and why? Hmm, that's a good one. The best coach, I would say when I started playing at a high level, John Toshak, played for Real Madrid and Liverpool. He was a coach of Real Madrid back in the day. He's the one that called me up for the Macedonian national team. He was just so relaxed, chilled, and just got the best out of you. And I would say my best coach because he was at a high level and you can see why. Best player I played with, I would say Goran Pandev. Won the Champions League with Inter Milan. You look at him and you'd be like, this guy's not a football player like anything amazing. This guy, you could not get the ball off him. He was just so good on the ball and he's a Serie A god. In like in Italy, they all love him. But on top of that, not because of his skill, the guy was so humble and so nice. That for me, he was just, he was a role model. Such a humble bloke. Played in Lazio, Inter Milan. He was, regardless of that, he was just such a normal guy. And that's why I would say, all in all, he was probably the best player I ever played with that I got to meet on the personal and on the field. The hardest player I played against, oof. You played um, against Ronaldo, haven't you? Yeah. Honestly, I think I came on when he came off, <laughs> to be honest, that friendly game. So you did, but you um, did sort of, yeah. I think it's. I think he came off, and Nani and Charisma came on. So, tell me who's bloody harder to play against? I would say the guy I had the most problems defending wasn't Hazard. It was probably Andre Schuller versus Chelsea. That one game, he was just. I'll read the player. I would try not to go for a fifty-fifty. I would go, and he would win it all the time. I think I had the most trouble with him that one game that I remember for the rest of my life. Played Hazard a few times, but. I actually defended quite well against him. But yeah, I would say surely that year he had in Chelsea for that game that we played, he bloody killed me. <laughs> Love it. Daniel Georgievsky, yeah. it's been awesome to have a chat. I really appreciate your time. I respect you very highly. And I wish you all the best with family. I know you've got a, a new addition to the family coming in a few days and I wish you all the best for the safe arrival. Thank you very much for your time on the show. No, thank you for having me, man. It's been fun reminiscing the life. And that is a wrap for another episode. I trust you enjoyed this conversation and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review. And I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.